Heavenly Father, these are truths that your people have been publicly affirming since the very beginning. Father, they are great and glorious truths and we pray that you help us to see their greatness and their glory today as we see how these summary statements flow from the things that you've spoken in your word. And Father, we pray that you do help us to see your truth, to believe your truth, to love your truth and to live your truth. For your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe in God. Six out of ten Australians could make that statement or something very like it according to the statistics. That would include Mormons, it would include Muslims, it would include Hindus, it would include some New Ages and Neo-Pagans, Baha'is. I discovered it would even include some Buddhists. Six out of ten Australians could say that. uh, We've all heard the interviews where the celebrity takes... Uh, sorry, celebrity or politician seeks to build rapport with a certain audience by talking about you know, how much God means to them but talking about God in very generic terms higher power, spiritual force, ultimate love I couldn't count the number of times that people whose beliefs are very different to my own beliefs have said to me well ultimately we all worship the same God we're used to hearing people talk about people of faith as if there was some spiritual or mystical bond between everybody who believes in something supernatural as opposed to those atheists as if we're all in the same boat as people of faith in the first centuries after Christ's earthly mission everybody believed in the gods and they devoted themselves to worshipping the ones among them who they thought would be of most benefit to them and their people. That worship was woven into the civic life of your hometown. Everybody did it. It was integrated into your everyday experience. But when the new Christian at their baptism stood up and declared, I believe in God, they were declaring something very specific something very radical, something very scandalous. They didn't mean I am going to devote, sorry, I'm going to be extra devoted to this God among all the gods who we honour in our community. They didn't mean of all the gods, this is my God. They meant I have discovered that there is only one true God and from now on I am going to worship him alone. Everything else is idolatry and demon worship and I repent of it. Paul commends the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 1.9 because they, you'll know the verse, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. That is what every new convert did. They turned to God from idols to worship the living and true God. That's what every convert did and what they must still do. They declare there is only one living and true God and therefore they turn from every other object of worship as a mere idol and devote themselves to him alone. And that living and true God was not some abstract idea or philosophical construct 
And so the creed goes on to say three very specific things about him. The one living and true God is Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. Just in case you get worried on the way through, the points get shorter. Just once you get to the end of the first one, let the reader understand. Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. The God we put our faith in is Father. And we could spend a whole series on just on what that meant and what a magnificent and encouraged series that would be. But let me just give you the briefest description of three things that the Bible means when it talks about God as Father. Firstly, fatherhood is personal and relational. Fatherhood is personal and relational. Philosophy can conceive of God as, you know, abstract terms, as God as an idea, unmoved mover, ground of all being, you know, first cause. But the Christian believes something deeper than that. God isn't an abstract idea. God is a divine being who generates life and who enters into relationships. That's why the goal of the gospel is not enlightenment, you know, the seeing of ultimate truth, but reconciliation. People who love and trust and worship the one who is ultimate truth and who receive from him love and blessing in return. People who are in relationship with him. This is why the picture of Revelation 7 that we looked at last week. It's not a bunch of people nodding because, you know, they finally worked out the answer to the question of the meaning of life. No, it's a picture of people rejoicing as they stand in the presence of him who sits on the throne and the lamb, proclaiming him as saviour, while his hands wipe every tear from their eyes once and for all. Christians don't ultimately hold a philosophy, but love and worship a being who loves and blesses us. Fatherhood is personal and relational. Secondly, to speak of God as Father is to embrace the Trinitarian nature of God. To speak of God as Father is to embrace the Trinitarian nature of God. You'll notice that the Creed, if you know it, it can naturally be divided into three sections, each of which begins with a declaration of belief in the Father, the Son and the Spirit. There is one God, but in a great and unsearchable mystery... That one God exists as three persons, bound in love and perfect community. And that is about as big and like mind-blowing, that is as big and mind-blowing a truth as you could possibly get. Trinitarian theology is heavy, duty, deep theology. And yet from its earliest creeds, God's church has taught the truth about God as Father, Son and Spirit to the very newest Christians, the very babiest of Christians and required them to affirm it at their baptism. They can spend a lifetime then growing in their understanding of it and their wonder at what it means but from the very first day they must affirm it as true even if it is as yet incomprehensible to them, that there is one God who is Father, Son and Spirit. 
And the Bible teaches a very important practical implication that flows from that. To understand God as Father, we must look to the Son, Jesus. To understand God as Father, we must look to the Son, Jesus. Father is a relational term. You are only a father in relation to a child, right? That God is divine Father demands that there is the divine Son. And that divine son, he came and he took on human flesh and we're going to think about what that means in a couple of weeks. But in doing it, he revealed the father to us. The way into relationship with the father is relationship with the son. That's one of the themes in John's gospel. So in John's magnificent prologue at the beginning, he writes, no one has ever seen God But God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And on the way through his gospel, he recounts Jesus' own words to his disciples in chapter 14. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. It's not just John elsewhere in Matthew's gospel. He captures Jesus expressing the same idea on a different occasion where he says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. God is the Father of the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Son uniquely and truly reveals the Father to us. This means that the only way into relationship with the Father is through the Son. You cannot know the one living and true God apart from knowing Jesus Christ. The way that we draw near to the Father is by drawing near to the Son in faith, that that Son who has existed in perfect relationship with the Father for all eternity. The Father is not to be found in some sacred space or some mystical experience or at the end of a certain chain of complex philosophical reasoning. He is found in relationship with the Son he sent us. The Son he sent us specifically so that we might be reconciled to the Father through the Son. Sometimes people tell me that they feel closest to God or they feel closest to the Heavenly Father when they're out in nature. And it may be true that that's what they feel. But in reality, we are closest to the Heavenly Father when we are united to his Son, who is so close to the Father that he is able to say, I and the Father are one. That's why when somebody expresses an interest in God, if you're here with an interest in God, then what we do is we take you first to a gospel where you will meet the story of the Son who leads us to the Father. And so if you are interested in God, then come and say, hey, can I do your Jesus introduction course? Because it's awesome. This is also why we should pause and reflect if Jesus Christ is not the centre of our relationship with God. That should be a thing that gives us pause to think and be concerned. This is also why every other religion or spiritual philosophy is ultimately a dead end. If if the Son is the only way to the Father, then every other way that does not involve the Son has to be a dead end. 
To speak of God as Father is to embrace the Trinitarian nature of God and specifically to affirm that God is the Father of the Son, Jesus Christ, and the only way to know, the, the only way to know God the Father is to know his Son. The third thing we can say, which flows from all of this, if we know the Son, then God the Father is not just his Father, he's also our Father. Faith unites us to Christ and therefore embraces us in, God, in, in, in the Son's perfect relationship with the Father. We get embraced in the Son's perfect relationship with the Father. In John's prologue again we're told, to those who receive him, that is Christ, to those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become, do you remember what it says? He gave the right to become, say it loud, children of God and Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 and Galatians 3.26 help us to understand how that works they describe how we've been adopted as sons, men and women we've been adopted as sons through Jesus Christ the son when we put our faith in Christ we are united to Christ and in a a mysterious and magnificent way we come to share in his perfect sonship with the perfect father God in his grace and his mercy comes to look on us the way that he looks on Jesus. He loves us with the love that he has for Jesus. How magnificent is that? God is not just the father towards Jesus. He's now our father too if we belong to Jesus. Could there be a more beautiful truth than that? God the Father is my heavenly Father. Some of you didn't have great earthly fathers. But if you trust Jesus, you are loved by a perfect heavenly Father. Some of us had awesome fathers. If you trust Jesus, you're loved by an even better, infinitely better heavenly Father. It was a precious thing for those pagan converts all those centuries ago to stand and affirm, I believe in God the Father. It's a precious thing for us to stand and affirm it today. The living and true God is Father. He is also, secondly, almighty. He is almighty. And we get a kind of vivid glimpse of what that means in our readings from Psalm 104 and from Revelation 4. But the whole Bible is littered with references to God's almighty power right from the beginning all the way to the end so in the very first book uh, in, in Genesis God asks is there anything too hard for the Lord Genesis eighteen fourteen, and then you go all the way to Revelation right at the end where God declares in chapter 1 verse 8 I am the Alpha and the Omega who is and was and who is to come the almighty and everywhere in between You see it countless times right through the story of his people and then you see it climactically and definitively as he raises his son from the dead as the Lord of all things. We could never really trust a God whose power was limited or sporadic or unpredictable, could we? You couldn't really trust him. But the living and true God is almighty. God has power over all things all the time. There's nothing outside the scope of his power. 
God, as Packer puts it, God can and will do all that he intends to do. God has complete power over us. In Psalm 2, if you know Psalm 2, we see that picture of the greatest of earthly human political power conspiring to rebel against God. And if you know the psalm, tell me, what is God's response to that? The one enthroned in heaven, he laughs. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. When I go diving, kids always ask, did you see Nemo? And yes, I've seen plenty of clownfish in my time. Let me tell you a secret about clownfish. They are very territorial. And so they're only like this big, but if you get close to their enemy home... They can dart out at you to try and scare you away. It's like this tiny little fish. He's coming out, he's getting all up in your face and go, yeah, you want to go, bro? You want to go? And you can't help but laugh because it's ridiculous. God's the diver, we're the clownfish. God is almighty. And that should be a very scary thing if you have made yourself his enemy. Bible's clear that human rebellion is ridiculous in its futility but it's very serious in the light of God's holiness and glory. If I make myself God's enemy then in the end I will reap what rebellion against the glorious and holy God deserves. Judgment and hell, that's what it deserves. That God is almighty should be a scary thing if I have made myself his enemy. And so if that's you, repent Trust the son he sent you. Be reconciled to God, please. That God is almighty is an amazingly comforting thing. It is an amazingly comforting thing if I know the almighty one is my loving heavenly father. There's not much comfort in knowing God as father if he's not almighty. I read some World War II history the other day and I learned some, about some terrible atrocities that went on. And there's this heartbreaking story about a father who could not stop something terrible being inflicted upon his children. He died trying to save them. But his efforts were futile. He lost his life and so did they. That father loved his children. But he wasn't strong enough to deal with the forces of evil that came against them. But the living and true God is both Father and Almighty. He's the one who both loved his Son and raised him from the dead to eternal life. And this is why the Christian life is always a life of hope. The Christian life is always a life of hope. We know that we are loved by a Heavenly Father who is Almighty. Sometimes he lets us go through things that we would rather not go through. But Romans 8 makes clear that even those things are part of his loving us, part of his loving process of making us like Jesus. And at no point has he ever lost control. We're never in a situation which God can't work in because there is no place, there is no circumstance beyond the reach of his sovereign hand. And we know, we know that in the end of all things, His plan for his people is resurrection. God is Father and God is Almighty. 
And so the Christian is always in the sphere of his love and his power. And so the Christian is never without hope. Some of you might need to hear that today because of the situation that you're in, your circumstances. God is your loving Father. God is your almighty Father. We are never in a situation without hope. I believe in God the Father, almighty, finally creator of heaven and earth. God is the one who made the entire universe. That's the whole point of the Bible's first page, right? It's assumed on every single subsequent page. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Revelation 4.11, right at the end of the Bible. God has existed for all eternity. Everything else is the work of his creative power. Everything else continues to exist by the work of his sustaining power. And again, we could spend a whole series on the implications of that. But let me just bullet point, I think there's three, a few of them anyway. Firstly, the material world is good. It's scarred by sin until the day of resurrection, but it's good. And its goodness points to the goodness of its creator. Those who look at the world with the eyes of faith should notice the echoes of God's goodness in creation. The creation should direct us to his eternal power and divine nature and it should cause us to rejoice in it. In that sense, in that sense, despite what I said earlier, seeing the wonderful vista or the amazing scene of the majestic animal, manta rays for example, you know, seeing these things as we spend time in creation, they should actually make us recognise something about God. Those things do point us to his power and his nature. Secondly, there is, there is a givenness about our identities. There is a givenness about our identities. And some of you, many of you have heard me talk about this before at more length. But in our sort of cultural moment where the self-delusion of self-definition sort of reigns, I think it's worth repeating. There is a givenness about our identities. We don't think ourselves into being. We don't feel ourselves into being. We are the handiwork of someone else. We were made. We are creatures with a creator. In Psalm 139, the psalmist writes, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. God, the Almighty Father, is the one who knit us together. We are fearfully and wonderfully made by a fearful and wonderful Creator. And that means we have a purpose and an identity that has been given to us. He made us for a reason and that reason is relationship with him. He made us to live a certain way which he reveals for us in the person and the ministry and the message of Christ who lived the truly and perfectly authentic human life. We are creatures with a creator and therefore before I look inward to my feelings or around to my affinity group to define myself, I need to look up 
and I need to ask God, who did you make me to be? And then I need still not to look inward or to look around. I need to look to Christ because Christ is where the Almighty Father provides the answer for me. Christ reveals who he made me to be, who I am. We are creatures with a creator. Thirdly, finally, and most obviously, we owe God our worship because our very existence is the work of his hand. In Revelation 4, the host of heaven respond to God's identity as creator and sustainer by crying out, You are worthy of all glory, all power, all honour. As the only living and true God, he is worthy of our worship. As Divine Father, he is worthy of our worship. As the Almighty God, he is worthy of our worship. As the creator of heaven and earth, he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of this time that we devote to him together now. As we go into the world tomorrow, to work, or doing chores, going to school, sitting in the doctor's office, he is worthy of our worship. What's the first thing in your diary tomorrow? Just stop and think about what that is. What's the, what's the first thing on your agenda tomorrow? First thing in your timetable. What will make it, whatever it is, what will make it an act of worship to God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? As you look forward, or maybe not look forward, but as you expect to do it tomorrow, what will make it an act of worship to God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to be able to affirm that the creator of heaven and earth, God Almighty, is my Father. Father, help us to believe it. Help us to marvel at the privilege of it. Help us to live like we believe it. Help us to live like it's true. Give us the strength. Give us the wisdom for that. That thing we, that's first on the list tomorrow. Father, help us to go in with the attitude, with the intention to make it an act of worship to God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And then whatever's second in the agenda, whatever's third and whatever's next. Father, you are worthy of our glory and honour and power. You are worthy of our worship. We love you and we trust you and we pray that you might empower us to give it to you every moment of every day. And Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.